Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, Headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. In this episode, well, originally as intended, I wanted to speak about censorship in the Soviet Union. And a large part of this episode is dedicated to this subject, but I have learned from Alexander Nevzorov and other nice colleagues of mine, I'd like to tie this in with a thing that literally just happened on the 16th of April 2019. This will tie in nicely. The Russian state Duma has approved the third and final reading of a bill, quote, providing for safe and sustainable functioning of the internet on Russian territory. Basically, they just passed a law isolating Russian internet. See, the thing is, in a nutshell, according to lawmakers, this uh, is a blueprint for what to do in case of a rainy day. If someone attacks the Russian segment of the internet, if they threaten to restrict or disable Russia's internet access, Roskomnadzor will seize centralized control of Russia's internet. The federal agency will begin filtering all internet traffic through special override systems that will be supplied to telecommunication providers free of charge. ISPs, internet service providers, will have to obey Roskomnadzor's direct instructions observing the new traffic routing rules that effectively will lock down Russia's internet from within. It is, however, still very unclear what Russia's authorities are guarding the internet against. So, in this episode, at first, a bit of explanation of what this new law means for me and for all of you, and, you know, my access to information there. I'll have to walk more on foot, which I'm going to do in Ukraine anyways, but still. But uh, this whole thing really needs to be compared and contrasted with the Soviet-era censorship, which I went through quite thoroughly. So, let us begin. Let's start with the current events, and then move on with the Soviets, and see where it leads us. See, currently, as this was just passed, per one, the legislation still doesn't list any potential threats against Russia's internet infrastructure. The Prime Minister's Medvedev's cabinet will have to iron out these details after the law is adopted, along with the regulations and bylaws explaining how to detect these potential threats and how to respond. 
But training maneuvers are already planned. For the purposes of hands-on experience, key players in Russia's internet infrastructure are required to participate in training maneuvers. Internet service providers, traffic exchange point owners, communication network owners, of owners of the communication lines that cross Russia's national border, and owners of autonomous system numbers, which is large collections of IP routing prefixes controlled by single administrative domains. All these people really need to participate in training. The draft law still doesn't actually clarify who must participate in these maneuvers, and neither does it lay out the drill's specific goals or exercises. The federal government will be responsible for finalizing these policies as well. This law effectively creates a second internet censorship system for Russia. The new system will rely on technical means to counter threats. For now, it's still unclear how this defense system will actually work, but the technical means devised by lawmakers would have the capacity to block any prohibited internet resource in Russia, from websites on Roskomnadzor's blacklist and fake news to instant messenger telegram and disloyal virtual private network services. Roskomnadzor will supply this new equipment free of charge to internet providers and ISPs will be required to install the hardware on their networks and report back to the authorities where exactly they placed the gear. In certain circumstances, the government will permit service providers to exclude internet traffic through these devices, but these conditions remain unclear again. These new regulations, in effect, like I said, create a nice second censorship system that will activate only if Roskomnadzor centralizes control over Russia's internet infrastructure in the event of uh, national threats or drills. Drills are important here in this document. The drill part without any real threats basically means that they can shut it down at any point that they like and just say that, oh no, we're just drilling. You know, what if uh, some other nice GRU agents, like in the Skripal case, Pyotr and Bashirov decide to, you know, visit the Salisbury Cathedral once again? In peacetime, Russian ISPs are still obligated to rely on their own internet filtration systems, which already existing laws require them to have. The legislation's original draft, by the way, charged Roskomnadzor with setting the timetable for installing, bringing online and upgrading the hardware needed to counter foreign internet threats. The bill's parliamentary steering committee initially approved this language, but members suddenly revised the text a day before the bill went to the Duma floor for the second vote, transferring this authority to the Prime Minister's cabinet, which means Dmitry Medvedev himself will personally decide when to shut this thing down. The legislature also deleted the law's original copies from the state Duma's online database and replaced them with the new versions, so that, you know, it never existed anymore anyway, which will really fit in nicely once we get to the Soviet parts. Legislation stipulates that the new counter-threat system might cause internet service disruptions, meaning that individuals could lose normal internet access. ISPs can report outages associated with the new counter-threat hardware, but the government decides the procedure and time frame for reviewing these grievances. At the same time, ISPs cannot be held responsible for these disruptions, which the legislation makes clear without assigning liability to anyone else, which means that, hey Russia, your internet will just stop working and no one will be responsible. Senator Ludmila Bokova, one of the law's co-authors, proposed an amendment that would have instructed ISPs to send clients complaints to Roskomnadzor for a compensation procedure, but lawmakers promptly rejected this proposal. The law creates a separate entity and special communication system for centralized internet control. It creates this new center for monitoring and managing a public communications network within Roskomnadzor's radio frequency service that will search for threats to Russia's internet access and convey countermeasures and binding instructions to ISPs. Roskomnadzor will transmit these instructions through special communication devices that all key players must install. Obviously, this equipment has to be located within Russia's borders, and the government will monitor the industry separately and very closely for compliance with this rule. This makes Roskomnadzor... Finally, the king of Runat. 
The agency will create a national domain name system on its own, its own DNS that internet providers will be required to start using beginning with January the 1st, 2021. ISPs that refuse will be disconnected from Russia's traffic exchange points. Roskomnadzor will also become a co-founder of the non-profit institution responsible for forming Russia's national domain zone, which will combine the top-level domains .ru, .su, and .rf in Kyrillic. The non-profit will be considered the owner of this zone's databases and international organizations that distribute these network addresses and domain names. And this whole thing just gets crazier, because this law will take effect before the end of this year. That's right, folks. According to legislation's revised text, these new rules and regulations will start rolling out in November the 1st, 2019. And this, this has just been approved on April 16. Interestingly enough, head of Roskomnadzor, Alexander Zharov, told RNS news agency that the law on the isolation of the Runet, whose enforcement this agency would lead, would be dormant should it take effect. A direct quote from him is, quote, This is a pretty formidable weapon, but I hope that, like the nuclear weapons that several countries possess, it will remain in a dormant state. Because, obviously, censoring your own country's internet and, you know, cutting the people from the outside world, kind of setting up, like, the Great Firewall of China, except way, way worse, because this implies total control and just cutting off people from access to the World Wide Web... Yeah, this obviously needs to be compared with nuclear weapons and veiled nuclear threats also have to put in there. The potential for its activation would stimulate companies that are not locked under Russia's jurisdiction to comply with Russian laws, including censorship regulations in their online operations. Yeah, this just passed. So now, how does this new, brilliant act compare with what our good old buddies back in the Soviet Union did? Let's find out. Even though censorship as such had existed before the Soviets was widespread in Tsarist Russia, but let's be frank here, at that point in a lot of countries of the planet, up until World War I, a lot of places were imperial, not really democratic, the beginning of serious, organized, and powerful censorship in the Soviet Union can be traced back to the 6th of June 1922. In this day, the main administration for literally and publishing affairs was created, which was abbreviated in Russian as Glavlyt. And, you know, informally called that way until the very collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, without any real changes in purpose and function. Previously, during the Civil War era, between Tsarist era and the beginning of the Soviets, any real censorship, although obviously practiced by all sides, was almost impossible to enforce centrally. But, having won, the Bolsheviks quickly determined that there was something very useful in the Tsarist way of running the press. And so they adopted the old-school traditions and made them more interesting. The official name for the institution changed multiple times during the period, but, as nobody in the motherland really cared, neither really should you. It was always Glavlyt, just as the secret police was always Cheka. And for those of you who want to know why, please do check out my History of the KGB series. Glavlyt was by no means the only censorship organ. Its main function was, at least on paper, the protection of state secrets. De facto, this institution controlled everything that was published and printed, and thus helped strengthen the position of the other major censorship bureau. Gaskomitsdat, often called just Gosizdat. This was an abbreviation for Gosudarstvenny Komitet Padelam Izdatelstv v Polygrafii Knizhnoy Torgovli SSSR, or basically the State Committee for Publishing, Polygraphy and Book Trade in the Soviet Union. 
Glavlit, basically, was the institution that had control over the publishing houses, printing plants, and obviously the book trade, and was in charge of the ideological and political censorship of literature. The difference here is in the fact that Gossesdat was more concerned of whether writers and poets and the like printed enough pro-Soviet propaganda. In simpler terms, did the artists produce enough stuff that was deemed good, while Glavlit looked for anti-Soviet materials, capitalist propaganda, and the like, and basically determined what was deemed harmful and censored things accordingly. Technically, Gossesdat performed these functions before Glavlit, but it was a daunting, not impossible task to combine with its other functions, because Glavlit took his job very seriously. While Glavlit existed, the life in the USSR looked like an always sunny, cheerful affair filled with optimism and was always moving towards the bright future under the glorious leadership of the Communist Party, at least according to the press. Glavlit taught the Soviet man to understand that what wasn't printed or said often had much more meaning than what actually was out there. It taught us to both read and write in between the lines, so to speak. Thankfully, many people who worked there, especially in the latter days of the Union, were more apathetic than zealous. One source that I'm using here about this comes from a 2005 tvnet.lv interview with journalist Dirt Konrads, who worked in Glavlitz Latvian SSR subsection during the very last stagnant years of the Soviet era. He writes, quote, The feeling wasn't Orwellian, it was actually very boring. The censors were just sitting there doing their mundane jobs, a lot of people started writing their own essays and other literary works. And as soon as anyone could get some actual job in the press, they left the office at the first opportunity. However, this is the latter days of the whole Soviet era, but the beginnings were much more interesting. I'll be speaking about the Latvian experience here, because it's well documented and more accessible to me, but I'm absolutely sure that things looked very much the same in other Soviet republics as well, especially those who weren't in the mainland Russia, but in mainland Russia probably these rules were even stricter and harsher. See, the law of the Latvian SSR branch of Glavlit was adopted immediately, in the same day that Latvia was officially and formally annexed in the USSR, in the 9th of August 1940. Glavlit and censorship were extremely important in the Soviet Union. Again, in the very same day, and we're talking 9th of August 1940, all periodic media publications were instantly shut down. After all, in the later era, they basically allowed whole seven newspapers and periodical magazines to be printed. The work was begun on creating the list of prohibited literature and the destruction of the books and materials in the libraries all over the country. The books to be destroyed were split in two categories, the first one being the earlier Communist Party literature, which held things that were deemed harmful for the moment. You know, all those nice proclamations and promises and everything that the party had said that didn't really adhere to the current realities of the day at that point. These publications were to be destroyed separately from other books, and those other books were just your regular bourgeoisie lies harmful to proletariat minds. The books were chopped to pieces with axes and burned. But obviously, Soviets really were smarter than Nazis, and didn't do it in the streets and openly, didn't make a show about it. They knew it would look bad. That book burning is one of the major criticisms of Nazis, well-deserved one. Soviets were sneakier. So, during the first period of the Soviet occupation in Latvia, they were most actively burned in Vilnius Street 2 furnaces in Riga Old Town. The fifth floor of this building was the first office of the Latvian SSR Glavlit. As historian Heinrich Strod writes in his History of Censorship in the Latvian SSR, turns out books really don't burn that well, and the glue and the materials really clog the chimneys, so they had to mix it with regular firewood, which then provided heat for the whole building. Practical, yet burning books still doesn't look very nice, and the Soviets can do much better. And after a while you also kind of run out of books to burn. Anyway, after a short while, they packed the harmful books from all around Riga and the country itself on massive barges and shipped them through our river Lielupe to Sluaka paper mill to be recycled. 
See, comrades, ecology is our number one priority. Shamefully, shamefully, truly, it turned out that some of these books were so harmful that a couple of these barges managed to somehow, you know, sink. Books got lost still. Stuff happened. Some books were kept intact in special archives and libraries for scientific and comparative purposes, but these were obviously never meant to be accessed by the general public. The true extent of Glavlyut's activities of this first early Soviet days in the occupied territories, and obviously throughout the whole Stalinist period and how these nice fellows approached their work, is quite revealed in a report from the Latvian SSR Glavlyut director Jaun Zems to central party authorities in Moscow about the diligent work of his institution in 1948. It's all about the cleansing the Republican book funds from the politically harmful literature, Jaunzems writes. Quote, Even though more than 12 million politically harmful books were confiscated and utilized in the early days of our republic, we can still find books in the libraries that need extra attention and special decisions if they are to be allowed to be used by the public. And we work on such decisions about various books on a daily basis. The confiscation of books and their harmfulness was determined by the prohibited book lists of the central All-USSR Glavlyt, lists made by our own LSSR Glavlyt, and also the list that our office traded with the Glavlyts of Lithuanian and Estonian SSR Glavlyts. <laughs> the term Glavlyt appears just too many times here. But yeah, if you were in Caucasus region, I presume that, you know, Azerbaijan SSR would trade them with the Ar- Armenian SSR and so forth. Ukrainian one would then train them with, the, with, again, the central one by the regions. You know, Glavlyts and censors operated independently, more or less, in the republics, all coordinated from Moscow, never truly independent, but, you know, had autonomy, because various uh, various authors in literature, you know, varied by the region. After all, Soviet Union did take up one-sixth of the planet Earth. But, well, as confiscating and destroying evil capitalist literature is hard work, and Glavlyt censors simply didn't have the resources or manpower to pull it off alone, help was enlisted. Organized squads of library workers, school teachers, and other intellectuals were used for, quote, absolute checkup of books straight in the shelves. Why did people do this? Some did because they were communist zealots, sent in from Moscow at some points. Some because they wanted to suck up to the authorities, but most, well, remember, at this point, when the book burnings happen, Stalin is in power. And you're an intellectual, which means that if you don't, you and your family might as well be sent off to gulags, shot, deported to some super remote village in Siberia to build infrastructure there, or, you know, any combination of the previous three. And in a lot of cases, people who participated in this were sent off to gulags anyway. It is deeply tragic, though. I simply can't imagine any sane person, but especially a teacher or a librarian, being forced to carry books to be burned or otherwise destroyed. Besides the true zealots, the amount of which we'll never know, you know, what makes me think here is how insane the level of fear, the level of depression and despair must have been out in the air those days, that the people whose job it is to spread knowledge, protect it and teach it to others, were forced to do the unthinkable and destroy it instead. All the while singing praises to Comrade Stalin, the party and glorious future, with bright smiles on their faces. To be sent off afterwards. Just crazy. The only place where the books that were to be destroyed remained were the special funds, the secret archives that I mentioned just before. Jaunzems writes that the employees there, quote, actively participate in the creation of the lists of the prohibited books and work with great effort to utilize dubious literature. They write conclusions about such books and after approval, thus the lists are always updated and increased. Besides libraries, bookstores are also controlled. While doing so, cases were found where, again, quote, some people try to introduce harmful ideology in our glorious country, placing postcards, stamps, and pamphlets with harmful messages inside the politically approved books that are sold in the state sanctioned stores. 
And you might think this was some form of resistance, but quite often these things were utterly mundane by our standards. One of such cases was when in the War Trade Organization bookstore in the category of trophy literature, Easter postcards arrived from the warehouse, drawn by the artist Bogdanov Belsky, whose paintings and books were not prohibited. These were deemed utterly harmless by the people running the bookstore, as they depicted little chick hatching from its shell with the caption, Merry Holidays. And as such, you know, in the Easter season, they were put into display. These things were all confiscated and destroyed. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for another episode of The Eastern Border. As you might know if you follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Discord, our show is growing. If you haven't already, this is the perfect time to join our community, as we will soon be delivering exclusive stories from Ukraine and give you an in-depth analysis of what is going on over there. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to our Patreon page on patreon.com slash the eastern border. A big thanks to all of those who are already donating the show would not be possible without you guys. That's it from me now. See you online. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Next task of Glavlyet was the control of the newly created texts about to be published. No governmental secrets were to be printed there, no ideological impurities, and obviously no books by authors deemed not loyal enough to the Soviets were to be published no matter the content. Censorship scholar Raimond Briad's PhD writes that since mid-50s, in cases of uncertainty, Glavlyet, all throughout the USSR, went to get advice from the secretaries of the Communist Party Central Committee or their various department heads, tying the two control organizations, Glavlyet and the Central Committee, ever closer. During Khrushchev's thaw period, censorship became a bit more lax for a short time. And a small tangent here, even the term thaw, when applied to Khrushchev in the post-Stalinist era, was considered to be one of the prohibited ones, as it was the invention of evil Western political analysts. After this, censorship once again increased in the early 60s. To work closer with Glavlyet, other institutions were formed, specifically targeting the press. This was especially true to the non-Russian Soviet republics, like for us here in the Baltics and in places like the Caucasus. For example, in 1963, with the order of the Latvian SSR Higher Council, a press committee was set up, all of documentation of which was completely in Russian and which worked very closely with the center in Moscow. This organization controlled the printing press and determined the amount of newspapers and books to be published per run and concerned itself with the purity of the media, hence the name. 
This seems silly, but the prints of all the official typewriters and typography machines and everything was under strict control, so that this machinery couldn't be used for the very wrong reasons. By the way, because of this, any books that were not pure propaganda schlock were quite rare. Basically, everyone purchased every book printed that wasn't Marxist ideology, and they were sold out constantly. Good stuff, like, say, the complete works of Jack London, or all the translated sci-fi and the like. Yeah, runs were limited. And people, like my grandmother, and, you know, mostly everybody, because it was a matter of pride and, you know, calling yourself intelligent, just grabbed everything from the stores that wasn't Marxist as soon as it appeared. The books were cheap. It's just that people really wanted to read quality things, and they were limited. The complete works editions of basically anyone from outside the USSR and from the good writers from then were sold out almost immediately. I have seen the complete works of Charles Dickens more times in my life than anything else. Like, my grandmother had one in his home, and my dad had one in his home, and like everyone, I think those were the most popular ones. But like I said, anything that was printed was just out there. And these books, you know, as they were also deficits, they were sold in the black market too. They were very valuable. They were widely read and kept on the shelves as a matter of pride. Soviets liked their reading. We just consumed our books, which is something that was really good in the era, because when your information is strictly limited and controlled, anything that manages to get through must be really good. But moving on. This whole interlocking chain of information control, besides the stuff that I've mentioned here... There was also kind of military censorship and secret police censorship institutions and specialized Ministry of Culture institutions which worked with non-printed media. Anyhow, all of this whole interlocking chain still remained very obfuscated and obscure. The average reader, not even talking about the authors of books and articles and such, didn't really interact with them at all. Latvian poet Knut Skujanieks has stated that, quote, seeing the person, a real person responsible for censoring your work, was basically a pipe dream. For the author, Glavlit was a mystical, ever-present and an abstract term. The censor instructions often were delivered by phone to the editor-in-chief of the newspaper or the heads of the editing departments in the case of books. And the orders came in the form of, don't print this work or don't publish the author such and such. Who gave the orders and why, these reasons were never given. The authors of even the most seemingly harmless publications were left wondering what really was the offending part of their work quite often. And, as in the case with Eastern postcards, they could get really, really dumb and mundane, as obviously by the time nobody with a sane mind who wanted to get published anything really wrote anything open or even just mildly, obscurely covered seditious materials. No, 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 you had to work hard to get things through. Again, I have to kind of really push through this message. We learned to read between the lines in the hard way. Flipping something by was hard work and demanded a certain level of ingenuity of the part of the author. The various prohibitions and instructions were handed to said author by the lower and middle hierarchy of the censorship apparatus. Various creative unions, publishing houses, editorials, committees, and finally, finally in the lowest level, editors, reviewers, and critics. And the editors themselves had to walk on the edge and be sneaky, as the Communist Party looked at these artsy, pretentious intellectual folk with much suspicion at all times. The editor-in-chief of the literature and art magazine during the period, Jan Schappers, which was one of the uncomfortable editors of the time, states that while the rest of the censorship apparatus could be much, much more lax, if an editor would be openly hostile towards the Soviets or Glavlyet, he would lose his work, or worse, immediately. In our day and age, the only problem for a book getting published is a lack of interest and funds, but back in the day, the so-called second life of a book, the whole publishing process had way more drama and excitement than, you know, often happened the author's head while writing the said book. 
Because you see, these authors and editors who cared about quality and art and meaning in their works, they had to work within the system. They wanted to push stuff through, get crap past the radar as they speak, because of respect for their work and themselves and just because information wants to be free and because that's what authors do. But they also knew that too much of a hostility, too much of a slip-up and you'll get a hardcore communist zealot from Moscow sent to run the publishing house or the newspaper and then nothing will get printed at all. And underground illegal sum is that will be the only option and that kind of sucks. So, even though the editors often get blamed for the censorship, and they were the direct link between the author and Glavlit, we really should be thankful for those who managed to get good stuff actually published. Even with the numerous concessions they had to make, which basically ended up being a crazy bargaining process. Like I said, living on the edge was a constant for them, and they were risking the wrath of the party, or on the other hand, shunning an open hatred by colleagues and readers, which also happened with some true communist people. Interesting examples of this art censorship can be found in these Glavyat reports to Moscow. Um, this one, by the way, which I'm going to quote from, was written by the later director of the institution, one Springish. He, on the 5th of January 1957, reports to the Central Committee to Moscow that a very popular culture magazine at the time, called The Star, or Zweigzne in Latvian, apparently, quote, systematically and diligently tries to replicate the Western bourgeoisie magazines both in the exterior design and in content. And a set of art photography pictures printed there is called a, quote, full spectrum of naked female bodies, all looked at from and de facto represented from a sexualized position. One of the weirdest things from this era, and a, another very tragical example, is when in Dial Theater, you remember, uh, again, theater episode, a contemporary play by Mirvaldis Birze, Wayward Station, was prohibited and banned from being shown. The reason being that, quote, the play does not show that the 1941 June deportations and Stalinist oppressions are not being completely justified and are not being shown as noble acts. Yeah, we always get to the terrible parts somehow. What makes this worse is that Mirveldis Birze had actually been a quite, you know, fanatical communist in his early years, which landed him in a Nazi concentration camp when those guys arrived. Apparently, in the Soviet Union, even surviving a concentration camp, a Nazi one, for literally being a communist, wasn't reason enough to get your stuff published if you didn't glorify and justify Stalinist crimes against your people well enough. Let that, you know, sink in a bit for a moment. But, so much about the art. The main thing was Soviet secrets. And this is an interesting subject on its own. All censorship institutions in the Soviet Union were administered centrally by the all-USSR Communist Party Central Committee Agitation and Propaganda Directorate. In case of the Latvian SSR, those were the third secretaries, the ideological ones. As all the documentation is only in Russian, as you learned in my previous episode, and all the reports went straight to Moscow, the local Glavlit had to work closely with these guys. In Riga, we have this building called the Press House, Pressesnams, one of the Soviet-era kind of skyscrapers, not as huge as, you know, the ones I just saw him back in the States, but still, pretty big one. Built on the right coast of Daugava, in Tipsela, opposite Old Town, where literally all newspapers of Soviet Latvia were run from. And Glavlit worked in the same building, on the 18th floor. Each censor had a manual, about 100 pages long, with paragraphs and sub-paragraphs, where they had information about what sort of things could be published in the press and what couldn't. Seven editions in total were printed from the period of 1944 to 1987, so there was quite a bit of interpretation work and wiggle room, and, you know, these things kind of got out of date pretty quickly, which caused headaches, so the censors had to work. 
Kondrat, the ex-censor turned journalist, which I mentioned in the beginning, writes that, for the most part, there were not only military concerns for the secrecy. The inefficiency and economic backwardness of the late Soviet system during the stagnation were also considered state secrets as to not look bad in the West and not rile up unnecessary sentiments in the general population. For example, you couldn't publish how much phones our local VEF factory really produced. Information about the Soviet military presence was also censored. You couldn't mention their contingents and army bases. Officially, they could only show up in the press in the capitals of various republics. Information about economical development of various regions had to be censored too. A single good kolkhoz or a glorious Tahanovets were used for propaganda reasons, but you would never see any information on how it played in the bigger picture, because, for the most part, achievements were fictitious and didn't play into the whole structure, as the whole economy outside the military was, well, mostly a sham anyways. Interestingly enough, this also didn't allow for the statistical data to be printed. For example, you didn't really know how much percentage of the global kind of GDP and the goods produced in the Soviet era each republic produced. For example, we found out that the Baltic republics were considered donator countries, you know, kind of like in the States, you have some states that produce more and then the budget has to be redistributed to poorer states. Yeah, apparently the Baltics had to send out about 16% of their total GDP to Russia, and you know, that, that went away. We were the richer republics who produced stuff. While, for example, places like Kazakhstan were considered major receivers of donations, and this documentation is available only right now. Again, we'll work in the economy episode later on, the bigger one, but still, all of this pure statistical data, very much controlled, and you couldn't show it anywhere. You also couldn't write about any criminal events, alcoholism, drug abuse, or anything that would show the Soviet government in less than favorable light. Thus, that might lead to trouble. These guys, by the way, were proven right in the end, because as the partial lift of this during the perestroika, when the information that everyone knew anyways became public, kind of gave the momentum needed and basically started the whole collapse. As the Baltics were considered the Soviet Union's border territory, in the civil engineering industry, magazines, the exact numbers about, say, width of roads and bridges or the thickness of the asphalt and various other technical information was heavily censored too, with numbers printed bearing only a vague resemblance to reality. Usually they just showed that instead of this amount of kilometers were asphalted or a bridge this large were built, people would just write, and you know, (laughs) when I worked with my grandfather, for his, like, history of the civil engineering in Latvia book, all the documents from the Soviet era basically state that, oh, this here little building district that built roads had just overdone their plan by 150%. The amount of the plan being, you know, how much did they actually have to do in absolute numbers, never really shown. You only get to see these percentages, because they are harder to calculate. Nothing really tying the whole industry together, once again. But I think that mostly this was so, so that uh, the filthy capitalist NATO planners couldn't, you know, calculate how many tanks could use the roads per hour or something. Also, in any military activity reports, you know, when they happened about, about various places where the Soviet peacekeeping forces went to, or like any reports about the Great War, anything, whatever, the Soviet military participated in these reports, the largest Red Army unit, whose defeats could be reported in the battle, was a platoon. Any larger units were only allowed to win, and only their victories would be reported. At the same time, suicide rates and car crashes were also a forbidden subject. But, but, this at least kind of makes sense if you think about the Soviet state and ideology. There are far more bizarre prohibitions too. For example, you couldn't mention the bird migration flight paths. Apparently, some higher-ups thought that the enemy could spread diseases via these migrating birds or something. Obviously, there were also various unpersons who were simply not allowed to be mentioned by name in any way or form. Solzhenitsyn being an example for a writer with his Gulag Archipelag, and Korolev for an engineer. 
Yes, that's right. For the most part of the Soviet era, nobody was allowed to even know the name of the father of the Soviet space program, the man responsible for shooting a garden into space. And yeah, all this information just came out, and now we know Korolev's bureau and what he worked in, but remember, he worked at a close, private, semi-gulag state in a secret facility, and no one even knew his name or anyone associated with this. This is just coming out now, and is relatively new for even us living here. Relatively new, meaning the late 90s or so. This control of the prohibited subjects was called the predvarichlini control. Precautionary control. Sort of information prophylactics, so to speak, if you use the intellectual contagion language that Dan Carlin loves so much. While I'm with Gagarin while reading this, I found out that after his flight in space, the authorities seriously considered renaming Riga in his name, this being one of the few cities where, you know, at that time over a million people lived and that had kept its original pre-Soviet names. Thankfully, that really never came to pass. But, by the way, doctorate dissertations and various post-grad theses were also heavily censored. You couldn't mention that, say, such and such invention is now being produced in such and such factory, because such a factory officially did not exist. Instead of prohibited list of factories, the Soviets ran a much shorter list of approved factories that were allowed to be mentioned in the press, like the Red Square factory, which produced uh, rubber things and, and boots, I suppose, in Riga, or something, but, you know, anything else, producing even remotely military stuff, totally forbidden. Censorship of the press concerned itself with pictures too, especially aerial photography and panorama shots. Among other things, at no time, both ends of a bridge over a river, a major river, were to be seen in a single photograph. If a Glavlet censor received such a picture in a to-be-published article, he had to go to the specific military censor to find out if this picture could be printed. Besides these instructions, hidden orders were also often given. Remember, I made an episode about sexuality in the Soviet Union and talked about that in the Name of Love book. Yeah, that book was ordered to be confiscated and destroyed, and then that order recalled, and then it was banned again, and this happened multiple times, which is why it ended up being so controversial and offensive to the modern reader with all these anti-homosexual parts, because it literally had to have a lot of concessions so that it would be printed at all. Other type of control was the so-called after-control. Glavlyth people would walk around libraries checking if books from the closed funds wouldn't appear there openly. Printing houses were checked often to check if prohibited books weren't copied illegally during the after-hours, which did happen now and then, obviously. Glavlyth censors also drove around and controlled radio and TV. They watched rehearsals of various shows and news reports. Yes, we also had rehearsals of news reports here in the Soviet Union. And obviously all the scripts were controlled. Even though live air was dangerous, there were almost no accidents because the editors of these TV shows who didn't want to lose their jobs often self-censored themselves even more than Glavlyet had the instructions to do so. And Glavlyet itself had a secret department too. All of its documents were kept in a special strong room and the employee would acquire them in the morning, signing for them and receiving a special stamp and then returning them in the evening. Censors for the most part were communist party members and took their jobs very seriously, up until perestroik and late era that is. If a censor allowed something to slip through, say if a military garnison somehow appeared in Kaunas or a warship had been docked in Liepaja, he or she would pay it for their heads. Kondrats remembers one of his own rookie mistakes, which luckily for him ended up not being a mistake. He didn't notice an information about to be printed in the newspaper about a military graveyard in Latvian countryside. But after his bosses consulted with Moscow, turned out that these graves were from World War I, and so were not considered relevant at the time. Every time a newspaper was about to be printed, when the typeset was sent and everything formatted, the responsible editor would go some floors up or down, depending on the magazine, as they were all in the same building, the nice men in Glavlyet section, in the press house, to get their papers checked. And only if everything was okay. Then, then, the prototype was stamped and signed, and only then the printing could begin. 
And again, we run into some kind of fun things about all the situation. When a book called Aesthetical Thought in Latvia before 1940 was published, for example, Benito Mussolini of Italy and Karl Sulman from Latvia, they were just redacted, but not from the text, but only from the list of persons appearing there at the end. And some really basic stuff was forbidden. For example, like I said, if you would mention the wrong factory, or if you would mention some sort of smaller airport, which wasn't mentioned, you know, in the official party statements, or the fact that in one of the regional districts that a gift for the new soldiers from Baikonur had arrived in Kraslava, yeah, that just went through. And also, if, uh, for example, in the list of deputies to be elected, mandatorily elected for the Soviet government, under four colonels, kind of, you know, got there in straight from the army, mm, no. We just couldn't have that at all. So, you know, now you know about the Soviet things, think about what's going to happen to the internet these days. Time to make some conclusions, I think. So, comrades, after hearing all of this and comparing... And knowing that at this point, a lot of written media, well, basically all of it, except some very, very minor things for the intellectuals like Echo Moskvi or Dozhj, are heavily censored in Russia today already. And knowing that um, the internet was really the last bastion of modern-day Russian independent opposition to Putin for where the people, Russian people, could truly speak up. Yeah, this is kind of scary if you think about it really reminds you of the Soviet Union. And I mean, this project that Russian Gazduma just approved truly looks like something that the Soviets would do if they had the capabilities and if the internet had existed at the time. The worst part about all of this is, again, this kind of institution of threat. What's important is not just the fact that they can turn off the internet and not that they would, but again, just like with the KGB and the political jokes in the Soviet era, I pretty much expect that there's going to be a lot of self-censorship on the internet now, because the drills can happen at any point. This whole, you know, living in a sense of paranoia and under this threat will probably break down some people. As we saw and heard previously, the news anchors had self-censored themselves already in the Soviet era. It is kind of scary that these things can happen and in a country just, you know, right next door to me, and it's a major blow. But like, you know, even now... Their news organizations operate from outside of Russia, a lot of them. A lot of Russian opposition journalists work from either the Baltics or the United States or somewhere. And the, one of the news agencies that I use as my sources, my buddies at Medusa.io, yeah, they work from Riga. The access to those things could easily be cut off from the Russian people, which I find both scary and threatening. And I also invite everyone, no matter which country you live in, to, if, if something even slightly similar starts to happen in your country, please, please do remember that, well, I consider myself a journalist, and I am one, and uh, I believe that freedom of the press is one of the most paramount qualities that a free society must have. Press is supposed to, you know, tell the truth about the people in power, to keep checks and balances and keep people from being corrupt and people from power to being abusive. All these things, all these good, good kind of against threats and security stuff, that is kind of scary if you think about it and, and the similarities between what happened in the Soviet era and what's happening now. I do not know what these new instructions will bring. Luckily enough, just as in the Soviet era, you know, the system is not quite robust, and as that being Russia, I do not know how they'll probably implement this with their hardware solutions. I'm pretty sure that a lot of money allocated to these resources and blocking will get just, you know, stolen. There are two opportunities. Either they'll screw this up and it will just not work, just in the case with Telegram, which wasn't really blocked, or it will truly work, and I don't know which option is scarier. I, however, hope that Russian people will keep that internet intact, and that we shall... We shall see true exchange of information and not just the stuff that Putin's government wants, wants to be able to know. It's kind of a nice example on 
how you can control the population with with its kind of information channels open. And if you want to know kind of more crazy stuff, the thing that I showed to everyone whom I visited in this in the states was this video on YouTube with Zhirinovsky in it. And you know, if you look up in YouTube Zhirinovsky America, you'll find a nice video with English subtitles where he basically speaks how a nuclear war with the United States is inevitable. And Zhirinovsky is a bit crazy, but hey, that's on their prime time television and debates. And that's what the people really believe in, and they they blame stuff at it. And that's really sad, because for a lot of people in the younger generation, in Russia specifically, internet is, and specifically YouTube and podcasts, is the only way how they can really get the access to free information and how some realistic changes could happen and how they could improve their own lives. And no matter their political views, I mean, this internet thing is where all the opposition who are against Putin concentrate, both the Russian right-wingers and nationalists and Russian left-wingers and, well, anyone, people from both conservative and liberal-leaning opposition in Russia, because at this point, there is no centralized thing that is just mess that is Putin's kleptocratic government and people, even on the sides, which would be kind of more closely related to Putin, yeah, even they don't get a platform, really. And now, well, that's about to be taken away. We really have to watch how this will develop. But thankfully, thankfully we do have a lot of documentation about how this worked in Soviet era. Let's really hope it does not come to this. I will, of course, follow up, and in case if something happens, I will let you know. But for now, до свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.